Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Marcus Hippi. This week we recap some of the highlights we've heard in the show over the last 12 months. Coming up, we are in Switzerland to discover the surprising roots of muesli. The German version of pronouncing it is muesli, but this in Switzerland means a little mouse. In Switzerland they pronounce it muesli, which means it's a little mush. Formula One racing driver Jensen Button talks about a new whiskey he's created. Every time I've tasted it, I've been like, guys, this is the wrong price point. <laughs> We need to be higher when you compare it to the other blended whiskies out there. But everyone's brought me back down to earth and said, no, this is a whiskey that everyone should be able to enjoy. And we'll head to the Finnish Lapland, where a new generation of chefs and restaurateurs are making the region's food offerings more interesting than ever before. With Gustav, we wanted to create a modern bistro that uh, relies uh, on local ingredients and uh, offers high-quality cuisine. That is all ahead in this episode of The Menu. It is the ultimate healthy breakfast and one of Switzerland's finest exports. Bircher muesli has become a staple of every upmarket hotel buffet and a favourite among fans of a vigorous alpine lifestyle. But its origins lie at a much lower altitude in a luxury sanitarium run by one of the most radical medics in Swiss history. Emma Nelson has headed uphill out of Zurich to see the very room in which Birschemusli was invented and made Switzerland the king of breakfast. It's the ultimate example of the healing power of Swiss nature. In the children's novel Heidi, the wheelchair-bound Clara is sent to the mountains for a wholesome diet and gulps of fresh air. By the time she's back in the city... She can walk. Today, the biggest health export from Switzerland's slopes is arguably a little breakfast of oats, apple and nuts. But for starters, we need to work out how to pronounce this revolutionary little bowl of goodies. The German version of pronouncing it is muesli, but this in Switzerland means a little mouse. In Switzerland, they pronounce it muesli, which means it's a little mush. And the breakfast dish we're here to talk about? It's called in High German Birchermüsli and in Swiss German Birchermüsli. That's Dr. Eberhard Wolf from Zurich University, the man fondly considered to be Switzerland's leading brain on breakfast. We'll hear more from him later, but first let's head up and out on a cold, thick Zurich afternoon to what is now a smart, modern business retreat on what's known as the Zauberberger, or Magic Mountain, to see where it all started. It's a good job I've had my bowl of birch muesli before starting out. The place I'm trying to get to is called Lebendigerkraft, and it's a 40-minute walk uphill out of the centre of Zurich. It's now home to the Zurich Development Centre, a sort of private hotel for employees of the insurance company. But it is here, a hundred years ago, where that little bowl of grated apple and oats and some hazelnuts changed the world's breakfasts. The Lebendiger Kraft, which means living power or energy, was a sumptuous haven for the ultra-rich in need of sorting out. 
It was a project of a doctor and pioneering nutritionist Max Becher-Benner. Outside here in the Swiss chill, you see all the beautiful green shuttered chalets where all the aristocrats with terrible complaints would come and get their cure from Dr. Becher-Benner. And the cures were pretty extreme. There were body wraps. At the beginning of each stay, each patient was given a booklet with regulations and a precise timetable. And electrotherapy promised to give tired, nervous and overworked patients better blood circulation. In 1906, the writer Thomas Mann, famous for work such as Death in Venice, was treated at the sanatorium and he hated it, calling it a hygienic penitentiary. But a month of early rises and early bedtimes, plus Dr. Becher-Benner's diet of raw food, worked wonders on the author's insides. Today, there's no barefoot dancing on the lawn, but the ideas born here can still be seen. The walls of the kitchen have posters of nuts and seeds on them. Dr. Becher-Benner himself stares down from a giant picture on the guests in the dining room. And tucked away and beautifully hidden is his office. And it's among the warm wood panels and display cabinets full of weird and wonderful pieces from the archive that I've come to meet Kevin Fensker. He's the head chef here. So we've got the grater they would use for the apples for the Becher muesli. Then we've got some pictures of them cooking in the kitchens. We've got some of the weird things they would do to people to improve their health. What can we see that's happening here? I mean, there's a gentleman over there that seems to have been wrapped in something. Yeah, and there's not really any explanation for it, but he seems to be quite comfortable. And what's happening over there? That looks like someone's having a wire attached to his head. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's electricity involved. Kevin then does the decent thing and makes me a bowl of Berkshire muesli on the very spot where it may well have been dreamed up. So we've got rolled oats, and then what you need to do is you need to soak them for 12 hours. What's the purpose of soaking the oats? What does it do? Like I say, I think it's to do with softening it so it's easier to digest. I need to go and get a spoon now, didn't I? <laughs> okay. So we would start with the oats. So here we have two tablespoons of rolled oats, which have been soaked in water. Then we have hazelnuts, which we ground up. And we add two tablespoons of ground hazelnuts. Quite a lot of hazelnuts. Then we have the honey, which you add half a teaspoon and half a teaspoon of condensed milk. And then what happens? So we take three apples, skin and seeds. You take the whole apple? Yeah. Okay, now that, I think some people might be quite surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, you know that the seeds of apples contain small amounts of cyanide, but I think it's not a problem. I'm not sure if they knew about it at the time, but the original recipe is with the seeds. Maybe just a bit of roughage, maybe adding to the, the fibre. Dare I suggest that muesli is not something that lacks roughage? <laughs> yes, no, you're right. Apple two going in. May I say, Kevin, I've never seen anyone great at that speed. <laughs> I'm pretty great at it. So now we have oats, hazelnuts, honey and condensed milk. And we're just going to put a little bit of lemon juice. And that's just to stop it going brown, but also a little bit of flavour. So, great, puffed out after doing all those apples. <laughs> and we just give it a mix. 
Normally, when you think of birch muesli, you think of a ton of oats, and then you add fruit, and then you soak it. Yeah, but, but this is the other way around, isn't it? Yeah, there's not actually that much oats in it. It's mostly apple, and it's almost equal quantities of hazelnut to oats. And what does it taste like? Would you like to try some? Oh, go on, then. <laughs> here you come with the spoon and the bowls, the most important bit. Okay, here we go. What are we doing? I could find. Oh, they're tiny, Kevin. That's not fair. <laughs> Sorry. So... If you'd like to... I'd love to. Right. Okay. How often do you eat it? At least twice a week. Really? Really. <laughs> when I get a chance. It's a lot of apple. I must confess, it tastes nothing like birch muesli. Hmm. It tastes like grated apple with a lot of hazelnuts. And the oats just seem to be a bit of an afterthought that you have to think about when it comes to chewing. But apart from that, this is more, I'd say, akin to baby food than the stuff <laughs> that we would have nowadays in the shops. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the highlight of the day from what everything else they were doing. The bowl of birch muesli would set you up for goodness knows what on the ground. Yeah, no, I think this is definitely going to help you do your gymnastics and croquet. <laughs> so that's the original. A lot of apple, a little oat and condensed milk, which, by the way, was a safe method of consuming dairy products at a time when there was a risk of tuberculosis. There are no dollops of yoghurt, no raisins and certainly no forest fruits. It fitted in with Dr. Bercherbenner's frugal dietary regime. And as Dr. Eberhard Wolf now explains, it caused quite the scandal. At that time, medical profession thought what he was saying wasn't academic medicine. It was an idea, it was a sort of a hobby, but it was not meant to be healthy and not professional medicine. There's also the idea of the romance of mountain food, isn't there? I mean, how connected to this is what happened with Dr. Birchebenner and then subsequently what's happened to us as well as breakfast eaters? This is part of the myth of invention Birchebenner covered the muesli with. He told the story, he got the idea from mountain peasants, but it doesn't make absolute sense. But it fitted, it fitted to sell the idea because there was a widespread idea of the mountains being the place for a healthy life at that time. And who bought it? The British. They were the first ones coming to Switzerland as tourists and contributed to make this the identity of Switzerland as not just being a place for holidays, but being a place to find health, especially among the British tourists. The mountains were seen as a place where you can get health. And this is why the idea of the Heidi story was so popular. And so Muesli and the Heidi story are to some extent connected. I spot Dr. Wolf has a postcard of Heidi on his office wall. He explains why he believes Switzerland as a nation has gone on to have such a huge impact on our breakfasts. Switzerland has, with muesli, made an intense impact on world breakfast. How did it come that muesli got international? I have a suspicion, the suspicion it might have been the Mervyn Peak hotel chain that spread all over the world and offered it at their breakfast buffet. And I guess this might have been one of the reasons making muesli international. There's one last thing. We've all been eating this stuff at the wrong time of day. Not for breakfast, not for breakfast, and even more for Bilger Benner himself. Muesli was an hors d'oeuvre. He said it has to be eaten 
before the main dish. So it changed from a health food hors d'oeuvre to a Swiss supper and then changed to the identity we all know right now to breakfast. And at the same time, it's a typical food for people practicing sports. And muesli even has a lot of more identities. And it's old people's food as well, you say? I once heard the rumor Bircher Benner has invented the muesli with a grated apple because he didn't have any teeth anymore. And he was looking for something that is easily to chew. So from the top of a mountain to a key export of Swiss hospitality and hotel buffet staple. The glorious thing about Dr. Berkebener's invention is that it has become all breakfasts to all people, but it will forever remain something resolutely Swiss. For Monocle in Zurich, I'm Emma Nelson. Thanks to Emma Nelson for the report. Former F1 world champion driver Jensen Button visited Monocle Studios earlier this year thanks to his foray into the spirits world. Together with drinks consultant George Kutsakis, he developed a blended Scotch whisky called Coach Build. Both Jensen and George joined me in the studio to explain how the idea was born, why blended Scotch whiskies deserve more appreciation, and what it took to create a new whisky brand during the pandemic. Here is George. I've always wanted to make my own whisky. I've been in the industry, the whisky industry, quite a long time, and I always had an idea of creating a really good blended whisky, a Scotch blended whisky. The Japanese have done it really, really well over the years, and they've really made the category get way more respect worldwide to the Japanese. And I always wanted to do that for Scotch. And it came about like one of our mutual friends just introduced us because Jensen's really into whiskey. He likes his whiskey. And I think that's when we started. We started discussing and he was starting his own coach building company at the time. Yeah, so coach building cars, which is really big back in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. where basically you'd go to a company like Rolls-Royce or Bentley and you would buy a chassis and an engine, and they would send you to a coach builder, whether it was Mulliner, Radford, or Hooper, or someone like that, and they would actually build the body. So all the different parts of the car would come together from different companies. It wouldn't be built under one roof. So it's like a collaboration, if you like. And for me, that's really exciting, you know, having this coach building company. And uh, when we talked about whiskey and blended whiskey, there were a lot of parallels there, so it was quite exciting for me. What kind of parallels are we talking about? So at the same way Jensen just mentioned that all these different components come together to make this one machine and a blended whiskey. A lot of people, you know, scream single malt and single malt whiskey is great, but it's all from the same distillery. It's the same distillate. It's made in the same stills. It's made in the same way. Whereas a blended whiskey, we get liquid and coach built, for example, from every single region of Scotland. We get it from all different distilleries, grain and malt whiskey. And to put that all together to create like a really balanced blend is a very difficult craft, the same way as like making a coach-built car is a difficult craft to take all these different components from different companies. So we were just having this conversation and then just kind of stars aligned and we decided to start this together. And a fascinating fact, by the way, is that you, you didn't meet face-to-face. Actually, today when we are doing this interview, this is the day when you meet face-to-face for the first time. So yeah. once you had decided to create Coach Build, how did that continue? What were the steps? Jensen, you were in LA and George, you were in Taipei. Yeah, I mean, it was a long journey. Like, James, Jensen's manager, came in. We just started making the plan. It was super fun, actually, thinking back. 
Like it was great having like having his input and like the whole brand. I mean, the brand's called Coach Belt. Making the bottle was cool, right? Yes, that, that was fun. Yeah, because the idea behind the bottle back in the day, there was a car that had the bird cage frame, if you like. So the body of the car was like this bird cage frame, very skinny frame. And if you look at our bottle itself, you have these indents, very like a birdcage car, a coach book car back in the day. So it was really interesting trying to do something a little bit different. You know, a lot of whiskies have a very similar style of bottle, which I respect, but it's nice to try something different. It still looks very classy, but uh, with that coach built element included. And I would imagine you had quite a few Zoom calls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a lot. It was just like really fun during the whole lockdown too and I, yeah i'm just like really happy how we brought it yeah. all together like me in taiwan him in la the whiskey being made in scotland like there's obviously a, a big logistical thing yeah i think it just proves that you can do it from different countries and on zoom calls we were able to as you said design the bottle come up with the name and also you know go through the blending process for george and was sending me different whiskies and do you like this do you like this this is before it's gone into the sherry cask so this is not exactly how it's going to taste it's like well it tastes pretty good as it is but uh, and then it went to the sherry cask and it just it's just rounded it off beautifully can you tell us more about those discussions you had for example when it came to the design of the bottle Yeah, well, we wanted, as I said, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And we had sort of four or five different designs, and they had to have a play on cars and coach building. That was the thing. So we we came up with four or five different designs, and this is the one that everyone just loved. It really stood out as a special design. And it obviously costs quite a bit more to do a a unique bottle compared to what most whiskey bottles cost, but totally worth it because it stands alone. It's very unique in the way that it's designed. And the interesting part I wanted to say as well is that the guy we got to design it has never designed a whiskey bottle before. So we got a guy in like Hong Kong, a Scottish guy, mm-hmm. funnily enough, and I wanted someone who, I didn't want to go to a company that's designed like all the whiskey bottles for all the big brands. Actually, we, we wanted someone who could just look at it from a different perspective because this is just like two industries coming together and he did an amazing job. Really happy with his work. And just the fact that he'd never done anything like it before is the fact that her bottle looks so different. To totally a lot of nailed it. Yeah, he nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to spreading the words, I wonder, do you have any specific markets in mind now? Well, we're starting off in the UK, obviously. I mean, this is where the whiskey's made. I mean, Jen's from the, the UK. I'm partly from the UK. But we really want to go global. Like, I think Asia will be a good market for us. I believe Europe will be a really good one just, you know, because like, there's fans of like cars everywhere, there's fans of whiskeys everywhere, the, the look of the bottle is very nice, That the liquid's phenomenal, as we've said. And later on, my goals next year is to expand into China and to the US, which is a bit, it's a bit more challenging with e-commerce, like shipping into the US. There's a lot of different regulations, but those are two markets that I think will do really well once we can get in there. From a selfish point of view, the US is key for me because I live there. So I want to be able to walk into a bar or a restaurant and order a coach built. So yeah, yeah. from a selfish point of view, yes, US next year, please. Exactly. (laughs) And and obviously this is an e-commerce so people can order it from online, from wherever. Most, like Brexit's (laughs) made that a bit challenging, (laughs) but... Yes, we're, we're like, our team is working very hard to get it to as many people in as many countries as we possibly can. 
Now, Jensen, now that I have you in the studio, I should ask a question about, not strictly about whiskey only, but also about when you are an F1 racer, for example, diet, how much whiskey and, you know, when you were actively racing, what kind of principles did you have about diet? What to eat, what not to eat, yeah. what to drink, what not to drink? I was very strict when I was racing because I'm 183 centimeters, so six foot which is tall for a Formula One driver. And you kind of have to be as light as possible when you're that tall because there's a limit for the car weight, including driver. And if you're over that limit, you're just throwing away lap time. So if you're 10 kilos over the weight limit, you're throwing away three to four tenths of a lap per lap, which is a lot of lap time. So I had to be very, very careful with my training, doing mostly cardiovascular work, some strength work, and eating a lot of protein, a lot of vegetables, and hardly any carbohydrates. And no whiskey. Exactly. <laughs> so so I, I saved my carbohydrates days for a good race weekend. So the Sunday night after a race weekend, or the Super Monday, as we used to call it, after a race weekend. So if I had a win, it was a Super Monday, and then we could go and have some fun. But um, no, after Formula One, you know, the Monaco Grand Prix, Montreal, Melbourne, it was the three M's, those three races were great fun after the race, so the Sunday evening. So that's when we would let our hair down as drivers and, and relax a little bit. You know, I think we all work very hard. Mentally, it's very draining physically as well. So you need to let your hair down now and again and enjoy those special moments. And those were definitely Sunday evenings with a few other drivers. You know, there, there's quite a few drivers that used to get together and spend time together. Who were you together? Who were I, I knew you were going to ask me that <laughs> one. Give me Raikkonen from my country there. Give me Raikkonen. I mean, we never really saw eye to eye when it came to race and we never really spoke much except maybe on a Sunday evening <laughs> with a bit of music and maybe one or two drinks. But uh, Kimi came alive and he is a true personality, he really is. DC, David Coulthard, good friend. I used to spend quite a bit of time with him when I was living in Monaco. Daniel Ricciardo, he's he's a guy that I get on really well with. You know, he's a really good personality. Great for the sport of Formula One as well. Jensen Button and George Kutsakis there. Together, they have developed the new blended Scotch whisky, Coachbilt. And finally, in the programme, we cross over to the Finnish Lapland, where young chefs are transforming the region's culinary culture. Lapland has long been characterised by dull and uninspiring restaurants aimed at the hordes of international tourists. But in recent years, they have finally given way to modern bistros and fine dining establishments that draw on the region's rich and unique ingredients. Monaco's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov reports from the city of Rovaniemi. Lapland has experienced a veritable tourism boom in recent years and attracts well over 3 million visitors each year, with the figure set to grow to nearly 10 million according to some estimates. At first the tourism boom had a somewhat detrimental effect on the local restaurant scene as the hordes of tourists were served lower quality bulk food and menus consisted of two or three stereotypical exotic dishes always prepared in the same way. For the locals, this meant that dining out was not an option, as the restaurants were clearly aimed at the mass tourism market. Now this has started to change and young chefs, keen to leave their mark, have opened more ambitious restaurants that draw on the region's rich and unique produce. One of them is Gustav in Lapland's largest city, Rovaniemi. Since opening its doors in 2020, Gustav quickly made its way to the list of top restaurants in Finland and has become a favorite among locals and discerning visitors alike. I caught up 
with one of the restaurant's founders, Robe Kotila. With Gustav, we wanted to create modern bistro that uh, relies uh, on local ingredients and uh, offers high-quality cuisine, not just uh, tourist dishes. This city, uh, Rovaniemi, uh, has never had a proper bistro restaurant. Uh, but uh, after we launched Gustav, uh, we have uh, been fully booked most of the time. You know, we hired people who worked in restaurant in Helsinki and wanted to move to Lapland for work. Tourists generate anywhere between 70 to 80 percent of restaurant revenue in Lapland, and all the restaurants, Gustav included, must also cater to them. Uh, of course, uh, we offer classic Lapland. This is like salted reindeer, but we have our own way to make them and want to find new ways of cooking. My favorites include our reindeer tartar, uh, which is uncommon way to serve reindeer. People also la- really like our duck kimchi and miso dish, which is not something that you usually find in Lapland. Kotila tells me that it is both the locals as well as the tourists that have started to demand better food. Uh, restaurants cannot serve high-quality food if they have uh, like 300 customers. But we also see more and more tourists who demand uh, better food. But it's not easy to run high-quality restaurant in Lapland. People are not used to higher higher quality food, but that is slowly changing. You know, we created this restaurant for the locals. Uh, we wanted to give them a, a great bistro that is uh, open also outside of the tourist season. Very few people have contributed more to the restaurant culture in Lapland than Tero Mantukangas, who has trained many local chefs and currently works as the executive chef of Lapland Hotels, the region's largest hospitality operator. Young chefs have introduced a new modern way of cooking Lapland dishes. They often go to Helsinki first to learn the craft and then relocate back to Lapland. We have many examples of these kinds of small restaurants, such as Tapio in the town of Posio, or the restaurant that the chef Ansi Rihimaki launched at Puha after having worked in the One Michelin Star Olo in Helsinki, Annar in the town of Inari, or the Sky Hotel in Rovaniemi. These young chefs eschew stereotypical Lapland dishes such as reindeer stew and squeaky cheese and offer instead new ways of cooking new kinds of ingredients. He is convinced that Lapland has the potential of becoming a real food hub and much of it is due to the wealth of ingredients that this wild region of Europe offers. It's safe to say that Lapland offers some of the richest and most interesting, sometimes even a bit mystical, ingredients in the world. For instance, we have the northernmost Zander population in the world. Our most important ingredient is reindeer, which we use for dishes ranging from breakfast all the way to dinner and which has an amazing taste. We get king crab from the Arctic Ocean, as well as clams and fish. I would also like to highlight our native bird, willow grouse, which the Asian tourists in particular love. We also have lots of wild herbs, such as spruce shoot, arctic sweetgrass and birch leaves. And the Japanese tourists really love our matsutake mushrooms, which are comparable to truffles. For Monocle in Lapland, I'm Petri Burtsov.
Thanks, Petri. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Kelly McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Caroline Polacek with Welcome to My Island. Thanks for listening and happy holidays. Design.